Today on the Ticker Tapes, we hear from Professor Metin Avkaran, Associate Medical Director at the British Heart Foundation. From the BHF, I'm Christy Norris. On the Ticker Tapes, we hear from the Cardiovascular Research Community, or people living with heart and circulatory diseases. On this episode, Associate Medical Director Professor Metin Avkaran shares with us his transition from research to senior leader at the BHF, his personal connection to heart disease, and what he feels you, the public, should know about our cause. One of the very few benefits of COVID has been the realisation that actually science provides the answers, uh, provides the solutions, and scientific research is the way forward to finding the answers, not just to COVID, but to most, if not all, of society's problems. Uh, And in our case, cardiovascular disease, tackling cardiovascular disease, which still remains such a major problem. Thank you for joining, Metin. If you could just start by telling us a bit about yourself and what your current role is at the BHF. Thank you, Christy. So my name is uh, Metin Avkiran, and I am Associate Medical Director for Research at the British Heart Foundation. I also have a chair appointment at the King's College London, where I am Professor of Molecular Cardiology. And in terms of your science career, can you give us a bit of a background on, on that? How did you get to where you are now in terms of your career? Good question. I won't go back too far. I'll maybe start with PhD. Uh, So I completed my PhD in 1986 at the University of Bath, working with Dr. Brian Woodward, who was a BHF-funded researcher, a cardiovascular pharmacologist. And my PhD was on studying how the sympathetic nervous system So this is the part of our nervous system that mediates the so-called fight or flight response, Mm. which uh, as far as the heart is concerned, it increases heart rate, it increases the force of contraction of the heart uh, with each beat, the end result being the heart pumps more blood to the rest of the body and allows you to either fight if you're under attack or or run away if you think you're (laughs) not going to win that fight. And The reason I was studying that uh, particular uh, system was to test the idea, really, that abnormal activity of that system in the context of a heart attack uh, might precipitate uh, severe arrhythmias, ventricular fibrillation, which is a a very serious rhythm disturbance, which stops the heart from pumping blood efficiently and can lead to sudden cardiac death. So I did my PhD on studying particular mechanisms through which the nerve terminals in the heart regulate how much of the hormone, the neurotransmitter that they release, noradrenaline, into the heart to act on heart cells. So that's where I started studying cardiac arrhythmias and the role of these specific mechanisms involved with the sympathetic nervous system in driving those severe arrhythmias uh, in the cardiac ischemia heart attack setting. Mm. I then, uh, after completing my PhD, moved to what was then actually an independent medical school, the St. Thomas's Medical School in London, to work with one of the inspirations in my uh, career, and I may come back to that later, because I really got interested more broadly in 
myocardial ischemia and, and protection of the heart. So ischemia is when the heart is starved of oxygenated blood, arterial blood. And in the context of heart attack, that's what happens when a major coronary artery supplying the heart with um, arterial blood gets blocked. But ischemia can occur in other settings as well. So I moved to St. Thomas's to do a postdoc with Professor David Hurst, who was a you know, world-leading expert in studying myocardial ischemia and protection of the heart in, against myocardial ischemia in a variety of settings. And I guess, truth be told, back then, I was thinking this would be just a relatively short uh, period of further learning and development. As a cardiovascular pharmacologist, uh, I always thought I would end up in the pharmaceutical industry to discover new drugs. Mm. So I went to St. Thomas's to do what's called a postdoc. I thought, you know, maybe three to five years and then I'll move to uh, industry. Uh, still do research, but more focused on drug discovery in, a, in an industry context. I suppose I enjoyed what I was doing too much <laughs> and actually ended up staying pretty much at St. Thomas's Hospital for the next 30 odd years, nearly 35 years. Wow. Uh, St. Thomas's uh, Medical School became the United Medical and Dental Schools of Guys and St. Thomas's Hospitals, uh, which then became King's College London. Oh, wow. So, although it looks as uh, I moved uh, across multiple institutions, actually, I didn't move the institution around me, changed. <laughs> so, I guess uh, it's uh, really important to acknowledge at this stage. One of the key things uh, for me uh, that really shaped my subsequent career was getting a BHF fellowship. Mm. It wasn't called an intermediate fellowship in those days, but it was the equivalent of what an intermediate research fellowship is now. These are fellowships you know, targeted at supporting individuals who have shown some uh, potential and aptitude. I don't want to play my own trumpet here. But, um, <laughs> it was then called actually a British Heart Foundation lectureship where the BHF funded the individual's salary uh, and gave them some money uh, towards their research costs for a five-year period. So I was fortunate enough to get one of those uh, in 1993. Uh, I still have that letter because it was just so uh, transformative uh, in terms of uh, my own career. Uh, in retrospect, I think BHF possibly made the right decision there, such that at the end of the five years, uh, I applied for um, competitive extension of that. Uh, so the next stage uh, back then was a senior lectureship. So I applied for a BHF senior lectureship and uh, I was uh, awarded a BHF senior lectureship for the next five-year period. And partway through my BHF senior lectureship, as it was then, the institution had by them become uh, King's College London. I, I guess another sort of important junction came up. Uh, I was uh, receiving uh, offers, chair offers, uh, and actually even offers from uh, industry at that stage. Uh, but uh, King's uh, offered me a, a proleptic chair appointment, so before my BHF uh, senior lectureship ended, uh, to move to a, a, a professorial faculty position. 
which I, I gratefully accepted. So had this sort of personal ambition, if you like, of becoming a professor by age 40. Unfortunately, I failed. I was 41 by the time the chair uh, chair came along. I don't think uh, that's a fail, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, nevertheless, I, I, I was grateful to have that support and, uh, and that confidence uh, placed uh, in me. So Fantastic. I carried on as a professor at uh, King's College London, uh, developing, expanding uh, our areas of research taking various uh, leadership positions, both at the institutions and actually nationally and internationally as well, in terms of leading uh, societies. I was chairman of the British Society for Cardiovascular Research. Um, I served as president of the International Society for Heart Research. So I think it's important to to give back uh, a, a little bit and not just do your own research. Mm. Um, in sort of shaping the broader research agenda, if you like. Mm. And it was really that which ultimately led me to join the British Heart Foundation in, in, in my uh, current role, um, yes. uh, which was in 2016, so uh, over five years ago now. Fantastic. So would you say that would be what drew you to the Associate Medical Director role was was having a, an opportunity to shape and to influence research rather than be the individual to carry it out. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think you you put your finger on the pulse there, uh, Christy. I really enjoyed uh, my research on my research program, uh, mm. and I've been really fortunate to work with some really outstanding people. I'd love to tell you a little bit about them yes. uh, uh, down, down, down the line, but you know, ultimately, I, I felt that I've probably achieved or done as much as I can. Uh, and I felt that perhaps the training and experience that I've accumulated would be put to better use uh, in uh, the um, BH, my BHF role mm. uh, in terms of having a, a, a bigger impact uh, in this very important area of doing high quality research um, in in the fight against uh, cardiovascular disease mm. um, uh, and actually enabling uh, empowering others to um, to do high quality research and deliver uh, impactful advances mm. and how did that feel because it it must have felt odd having a career as a researcher and a, and a team within a lab environment to suddenly being a charity leader with yes. all sorts of different cogs in a machine that you may not have been familiar with from marketeers to comms professionals to fundraisers how was that for you very, very good question and hand on heart it was odder than i i uh, mm. had actually anticipated uh, I, um, as a as a researcher, I, I had served on BHF grants committees. Uh, I had served on the project grants committee. I uh, actually was serving on the chairs and program grants committee uh, when I applied for the uh, associate medical director role back then. So you know, I had this uh, false sense that I really knew about uh, about the BHF because I'd served on the committees. I knew how grant applications were assessed and awarded. What, of course, I hadn't fully appreciated uh, was the, the broader effort that's needed uh, mm. and that's, uh, that's undertaken and delivered, both 
by uh, other BHF staff uh, beyond uh, the research funding teams, but also the the amazing uh, support of, of of the British public in in supporting us, and the realization of the effort and sacrifices of both BHF colleagues and our supporters in giving the BHF research team the privilege of supporting research and actually giving researchers the the ability to do that research through that. So it was very different from what I was expecting, but at the same time, it actually was inspirational. Uh, and it's it's been a it's been a real uh, privilege to work with uh, truly outstanding people at the BHF within the research team and and beyond you know uh, the research engagement team obviously <laughs> uh, the research communications team the philanthropy team the corporate partnerships team really uh, I've uh, I've really enjoyed working with some truly outstanding colleagues uh, who who make it all happen mm. and we find at the BHF a lot of people who work for the charity have a personal connection to our cause or a story to share. Is that the case for you? Do you have a, a connection to heart and circulatory disease? Yeah, um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm not alone in that. Uh, I think these diseases are so widespread, uh, affect so many people, so many families. I lost my father to a stroke when he was in his mid-70s. And uh, even more tragically, I lost my older brother to a heart attack uh, just before he reached uh, age 60 a few years back. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm sure that had a, a huge impact on your on your family and, and potentially on your day-to-day work, working in the British Heart Foundation with such a close connection to the cause. Absolutely. I think there's no doubt that it brings home uh, Mm. the importance of what we as the British Heart Foundation do and the importance of uh, what our researchers do uh, with the uh, ability, the funds that uh, we provide them with. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Um, In terms of of your life, I mean, you've, you've done so much in your research career and now at the BHF. Is there somebody that you can pinpoint as a role model? And it could be someone through your scientific Mm. career, or it could be somebody in your family. Who would that person be? I'm going to focus on my scientific career here, because I think there are two people, and and one in particular, who really played such an important role in in shaping my my career. The first one uh, was actually the young senior lecturer called uh, Dr. Brian Woodward in, in Bath, who took me under his wing, so to speak, and, and supervised my PhD. And actually, Brian had lectured me uh, in cardiovascular pharmacology during my undergraduate degree. And he really sort of uh, was responsible for igniting that interest in, uh, in, in the heart and uh, in how the heart works, uh, how things go wrong in disease, and, and the fact that uh, we can actually do something about it uh, through, through research. So uh, Brian was a BHF-funded researcher, uh, although actually uh, my PhD wasn't BHF-funded. I was funded by one of the research councils uh, back then. So I think uh, Brian is, uh, for good or for bad, is responsible for bringing me into uh, cardiovascular research. <laughs> uh, but the, the, 
um, absolute uh, number one uh, mentor, if you like, in my career was uh, Professor David Hurst, who I mentioned earlier, who gave me uh, my first postdoctoral uh, postdoctoral job uh, at uh, at St Thomas's Hospital, and David uh, was really uh, an inspirational uh, leader and mentor, and had had this amazing knack of getting you to do the research that he wanted you to do and do the experiments that he needed done, but also giving you the, the freedom, the headspace to follow your own nose, uh, follow your own ideas uh, and, and develop uh, that sort of independent line of research while giving you all the support that uh, you needed to do that. So, and in fact, I mentioned my BHF lectureship the topic of that research was really quite far removed from David's interests, but he supported me to do uh, work in that area, get the uh, proof of concept data, the pilot data that I needed for a successful application, and then uh, never stopped uh, supporting me after that as well. So uh, truly grateful. Just mm. uh, goes to highlight the um, importance of having uh, good mentors uh, in, a, in a science career. And in terms of, while we're on the topic of, of young scientists and, and the support that they need, can you tell us a little bit about what the BHF did to support young scientists when the pandemic hit? Yes, uh, of course. Uh, again, actually, one of my specific roles uh, at uh, the BHF is to work with the uh, fellowships team. My, my colleagues there, Dr. Noel Faherty is the uh, senior research advisor. And the fellowships um, that we award and the, the, the whole range of awards that we award through the fellowships committee were uh, are uh, very close to my heart. In, in my academic role at King's, I actually led uh, one of the first BHF four-year PhD programs uh, that was ever established. Um, Oof, it must be 20 years ago now, and uh, I, I was also postgraduate lead uh, for the BHF Centre at King's. So supporting and helping nurture and develop early career scientists has always been very important to me. So uh, when the pandemic hit uh, and uh, our fundraising suffered so much and our research budget suffered so uh, much, we really had to take some quite difficult decisions. But, you know, with, with the support of our medical director and other senior colleagues at the BHF, uh, we actually agreed very quickly that supporting early career researchers, uh, PhD students, fellows, uh, really uh, was of the uppermost uh, priority. And, uh, and that's what we did. I mean, specifically uh, talking about PhD students, uh, for example, I held two uh, workshops with postgraduate research leads at the universities where we fund uh, PhD students, uh, online consultations to try and really understand what the impact uh, of the COVID disruption was because all laboratories uh, had closed, uh, all non-COVID research uh, had stopped. So, you know, what could we do to protect these vulnerable uh, young investigators uh, and, uh, and their futures? And it was really out of those consultations that we set up 
an extension scheme or extending studentships, PhD studentships at uh, universities across the United Kingdom. I think uh, in the end, we funded well over 100 PhD studentship extensions at uh, over 25 universities across the UK at a cost of over a million pounds uh, at a time when money was tight. Uh, and I think that's, uh, uh, it's already apparent that that was the right thing to do and how much uh, our PhD students benefited from that uh, extension to mitigate the impact of the COVID disruption on the progress of their research projects and and their training. Mm. And, and, and we know that PhD students really valued that support when there was so much uncertainty at that time. But in terms of, I suppose, an, another spin on COVID is that science really has taken center stage this past 18 months, uh, more so potentially than ever before. How do you feel the BHF as a medical research charity can maximize this opportunity? I think by communicating the science uh, that we enable and the research that, that we enable and the potential that uh, that research um, has, um, you're absolutely right that one of the very few benefits of uh, COVID has been the realization that actually science provides the answers, uh, provides the solutions, and it, 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 the scientific research is the way forward to finding the answers, not just to COVID, but to most, if not all, of society's problems. Uh, and in our case, um, cardiovascular disease, tackling cardiovascular disease, which still remains such a major problem. Uh, and the urgency of the problem, of course, uh, has also been thrown under new light by, by COVID and the direct and indirect impacts that COVID uh, has had on people with cardiovascular disease or, or with risk factors for cardiovascular disease. I mean, you know, when you think about it, uh, and I'm going to look at this slightly from the academic angle here, when people started thinking about and, and then developing mRNA vaccines, COVID wasn't anywhere near in their thoughts. Mm. Uh, it, it just didn't exist. It was science. It was discovery. It was that uh, desire to um, understand things that we didn't understand and do things that hadn't been done before. And that's what science and research is about. Uh, you could call it blue skies research, but that's the origins of the mRNA vaccines or indeed the other vaccines. Uh, they weren't developed to tackle COVID, but because of uh, the knowledge and expertise that had been accumulated uh, from the amazing research those scientists uh, had done around the world, the world could respond uh, in the manner uh, that uh, that it did. Science could respond in the manner that it did. And what's been achieved in such an incredibly short period of time, you know, uh, going from a new virus, a new disease to effective vaccines over 12 months is phenomenal. Mm. Now, uh, that's one pathogen, one virus, uh, one disease. Cardiovascular disease uh, is a is a lot more complex. There are just so many different factors, so many different types of cardiovascular disease affecting billions of people worldwide. But the basic tenet that science and scientific discovery will provide the answers still it stands. And I think uh, COVID has thrown that in, in sharp relief that we have to invest in science, we have to invest in research 
to find the answers uh, that uh, that patients need, families need. Mm. And how did you feel on a personal level when when the pandemic started to take hold? Obviously, you're you're a scientist yeah. at, at your core, um, and that meant that maybe you you naturally uh, knew how this could go. How did you find the beginning of the pandemic as it unfolded? I, I mean, I think I, I personally was equally concerned as anybody else, really, mm, because mm-hmm. there was this unknown entity, unknown disease. We didn't know at the beginning what it was uh, mm-hmm. and how it spread uh, and uh, how it worked, how it uh, how it got in the how the virus got into our cells and how it affected people. Mm. So uh, I think the the, the initial uh, response, like everyone else, was was concern, mm-hmm. uh, concern for uh, myself, my family, my loved ones, for society in general, and uh, for for the BHF, uh, all of that. Mm. But actually, you know, I like to think that I'm good at sort of rational thought and sort of calm analysis. And with that really came the recognition for, you know, the need uh, for uh, calm thought and uh, and effective action in my professional role at the BHF. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can we do to protect cardiovascular research and, and cardiovascular researchers? And, uh, you know, working with like-minded colleagues at, at the BHF uh, to actually discuss and debate those actions, take advice, consult with the community and implement those actions were really um, very important at that time. And I'm, I'm just uh, looking back uh, of how much we as the BHF have achieved over that period, you know, within my remit specifically around protecting research and researchers. Uh, I think those achievements are things that we can be very proud of. Mm, absolutely. And we know that, um, as I say, we've been able to to shine a light more on on the BHF and, and our our connection also to COVID because of the connection between COVID-19 and, and cardiovascular disease. Mm. But there are still individuals out there who don't fully grasp the urgency of our cause or the urgency of, of cardiovascular disease mm. and may feel that there are other charities to support whose causes may be more pressing. What would you say to those individuals today? I would say that cardiovascular disease is uh, as urgent and as devastating as any other disease, if not more so. You know, I am biased, you would expect me to say that, but really investment in, in cardiovascular research is nowhere near in keeping with the size of the burden of the disease. You know, I, gen- I, I use the singular, I call it the disease. It is, of course, not a, a, a single disease. Cardiovascular disease en- encompasses a, a multitude of uh, uh, different conditions. But, you know, there aren't many conditions where someone you see alive uh, in the morning is dead in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. You know, cardiovascular disease, unfortunately, can do that. Heart attack kills a stroke can kill you know we have a condition called sudden cardiac death you know there aren't many organs uh, uh, whose dysfunction is associated with sudden death so these really are urgent and devastating conditions that we we, we need to you know uh, carry on uh, fighting against uh, and and doing the research that sort of delivers the answers that we need to stop this from occurring. 
Mm. I mean, and as you say, there are so many conditions that fall underneath the umbrella term of cardiovascular disease. So just on a on a basic level, how does the BHF fund projects? How does the charity decide which which projects to support? That's a, that's a very, very important question. And it's very important that that process, the criteria are clearly understood. I think the overriding criterion is quality. What do I mean by quality? By quality, I mean, what is the question that's being asked? How important is the question? And how important and helpful will the answer be uh, to the sort of broader effort uh, in, in that area? What difference will knowing the answer to that question make? It doesn't always have to be uh, immediate benefit to patients, and it often isn't. Uh, you know, research uh, takes uh, time to deliver patient benefit, but it's uh, more the importance of the question. What is it that we don't know? How will this uh, project deliver that uh, unknown? Is it designed in the best way to deliver the answer? And are the people proposing to do the research the best people to do it? So these are uh, really the, the key, key criteria, the importance of the question being asked, the likely impact of uh, knowing the answer and the approach to the question and, and the, the people and the environment in which uh, that research is being proposed to be undertaken. Mm. And how does it feel being on the other side? Because obviously for a long period of time, you were the researcher um, looking to, to seek funds from the BHF. How did it feel for the first time sitting in a committee meeting, being the one to influence the decision? Well, I'm, I'm sort of going to step further back in time. You know, mm -hmm. how does it feel to be a, an applicant? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mentioned earlier how transformative getting my uh, BHF lectureship in 1993 was in pulling my research uh, and research career forward. But actually, about 18 months before, I had also applied for the same scheme at the BHF and, and had been rejected. Mm. It was for a different project. And you know, I took it personally. I, I, I was devastated. Uh, and actually, I was thinking, well, maybe academic research isn't for me. Maybe I was right in thinking I should work in, uh, in industry. And I mentioned my mentor, David Hurst, and David gave me very good advice uh, at that time. Um, I can't repeat him verbatim uh, because I think that sort of language isn't, uh, <laughs> uh, is probably not allowed in a, in a podcast, but it was along the lines of, you know, don't let them get you down. Mm -hmm. uh, just read the comments, read the uh, feedback and think about it. In calmer circumstances when that sort of initial disappointment uh, has has subsided and 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 rethink you know can i improve my application can i do uh, something different and actually that was uh, sage advice uh, and in retrospect the bhf's decision was absolutely right you know that wasn't the right project for me uh, to be doing at that time so when uh, 18 months later, I went with a slightly different project and actually with more pilot data and uh, more of a track record, if you like, uh, of having published one or two papers in that area so that the, the committee and the reviewers would have more confidence in investing that very substantial amount of money funded by charitable uh, donations in me. 
it was, uh, again, uh, it was the right decision. So having been there and uh, throughout my academic career, having both been rejected and awarded uh, <laughs> uh, when I uh, applied for uh, grants, I, uh, I think I could be a, an effective committee member when I joined the uh, BHF uh, committees I mentioned. And actually, I'd like to think now in, in, in terms of actually really understanding not just the quality of the science, but, but the impact that our decisions have on, on people and, uh, and careers. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's very helpful. I find it very helpful. Mm-hmm. And with um, the BHF's funding, it's a good opportunity for us to start talking about the Big Beat Challenge. So this really is a first for the BHF and is a very bold step for the charity. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, so Big Beat Challenge is a really a very bold initiative uh, by the British Art Foundation. I've touched on already on, on the fact that research moves forward in increments. You just have to make sure you ask the right question, design the right experiment to answer that question, and then be guided by the answer to move to the uh, next stage. Big Beat Challenge, the aim here is to do something very different. Rather than small steps forward, we want to enable a giant leap forward, you know, if you like, a moonshot type uh, approach here. So that's why the BHF, our board of trustees and leadership, uh, decided uh, over three years ago to, to create uh, this uh, new competition to potentially award 30 million pounds, 33.0 million pounds to a single team who propose a bold new approach to answering a, a significant question that by answering that question, the advance will be not a small step forward, but a giant leap forward towards delivering patient benefit. And I've had the privilege of um, sort of leading a, a lot of the activity related to Big Beat Challenge over the past uh, three years. And the response from the global research community has been nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, you know, one of the things the BHF asked uh, investigators was, first of all, to identify the big question, uh, the answer to which could be really transformative, but also bring together the very best uh, of researchers from around the world, from all of the disciplines that have required to deliver that uh, big leap forward. And it, it really was amazing. We, we received 75 outline applications uh, from, from around the world. Uh, we set up quite robust uh, evaluation steps uh, involving multiple panels and committees, including a patient and public panel. Eventually, four of those uh, 75 applications were shortlisted to progress to full applications. And those full applications uh, were submitted in June this year. Uh, they were then put through an even more thorough review process uh, involving experts in all sorts of aspects of, uh, of those applications. Uh, we had set up a, an international advisory panel with really some of the leading figures, uh, not just in, in science, but uh, also in, in technology, in scientific publishing and uh, commerce. And that uh, panel 
was ultimately uh, responsible for interviewing the four shortlisted teams, assessing uh, their applications in delight of the expert reviews that uh, the team uh, had gathered and shared with the panel and make a recommendation about funding. And we are approaching the final stages of that process. And like everyone else, I, I, I can't wait for the results to be finalized and, uh, and announced. It's exciting. I would ask you to give us an inside piece of information, but I know you're not going to, so I won't even bother asking the question. <laughs> now, if <laughs> I told see. you, I would have to kill you. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me then. Yeah. Um, is there any small part of you, Metin, that's, that is disappointed that you can't apply for the funding yourself? <laughs> um, hand on heart, I have to say yes. yes. Um, uh, I had to make the decision, really, um, to commit fully to my DHF role. It's a privilege to be in this role. And you can't do it in a half-hearted manner. You have mm. to commit to it uh, completely. And part of the commitment, of course, is the inability to apply for research funding because of the clear uh, you know, conflict of interest. And because cardiovascular research is just so dependent on DHF research funding, you know, we fund 55% uh, of all non-commercial non research in the United Kingdom, which is just uh, phenomenal. So in, in addition to the, if you like, the distraction and time commitment, you know, I, I made the decision, and it's a personal decision, to run down my own uh, research uh, laboratory uh, with a view to closing it over a, a period of time to while helping my team, my PhD students, my postdocs uh, to the next stage of careers, but not reappointing, not replacing, not taking on new students to, to allow me to fully commit to, to my VHF role. Do I miss not directing research? Uh, because you know, by the latter stages of my academic career, I wasn't in the laboratory uh, very much. It was more about discussing work, designing experiments, uh, interpreting data, and agreeing on next steps uh, with, with, with my team. Uh, I do miss it, uh, but I think uh, hopefully what I do at, at the BHF uh, is going to be, in the longer term, be delivering a greater impact than, than me and my group uh, doing research. I thoroughly enjoyed my time as a researcher. I mean, you know, 35 years in, uh, in cardiovascular research. And mm. really the best part of it was the fantastic colleagues that I worked with throughout. And, you know, many of them came from all, all corners of the world. And talking about global collaboration, you know, we know it can be incredibly powerful. How does the BHF work with international funders? Research, uh, by its nature, has to be international, has to be multinational. Uh, and actually, there's a very strong ethos uh, among researchers, scientists. And I don't think it's unique to cardiovascular research either. Although there is an element of competition, actually, on the whole, researchers are very collaborative uh, in terms of learning from each other, pooling resources, uh, I, I digress slightly, but one of the victims of COVID, of course, has been scientific conferences. Mm. And if you spoke to researchers, scientists, that's what they miss most. It's not 
traveling to exotic uh, uh, locations for conferences. It's actually that face-to-face -face interaction with colleagues uh, from around the world that you could gather at the European Society of Cardiology Conference or the American Heart Association Conference uh, and actually network and interact and talk about science, talk about research, establish uh, new collaborations. And uh, unfortunately, COVID uh, has hit that very badly. But going back to your question about international collaboration, it's absolutely essential for, for progress uh, in, in science, uh, in research. And at the BHF, we actually have several schemes uh, to strengthen and catalyze bigger and better collaborations between investigators in the United Kingdom uh, and elsewhere. I've already mentioned Big B Challenge. I mean, that's by its uh, design, by its nature, is an is a international initiative. We've, uh, for three cycles now, we've run a, a very successful collaborative funding scheme uh, with the German Center for Cardiovascular Research, DZHK, uh, with the Dutch Heart Foundation uh, also joining us uh, from the second cycle onwards to fund uh, collaborative uh, projects uh, between researchers uh, in the three partner partner countries. And there are other schemes. Our, our medical director is uh, working very hard to establish a, a multinational clinical trials platform under the umbrella of a, an organization called Global Cardiovascular Research Funders Forum. So international collaboration is uh, absolutely key Cardiovascular disease is a is a global problem, and uh, we need to work together across the world to find the answers uh, that we need. And uh, at the BHF, we are doing everything we can to make that happen. Mm. And I guess that leads really nicely into my last question for you, which is really about what you want the public to take away from this podcast and what they've heard. What would that be? I think I would say that with your support, we will win this fight and we will move it away from cheating cardiovascular diseases to hopefully preventing and even curing cardiovascular diseases. Great. Thanks, Metin. It's been such a joy speaking to you. I really appreciate you coming on to this podcast with me and um, I'm sure the public will love hearing what you have to say. So thank you. My absolute pleasure, Christy. Thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity. Pioneering research has led to better prevention, diagnosis and treatment of heart and circulatory disease. But there's much left to do. To find out how you can support the British Heart Foundation, please visit our website bhf.org.uk. If you have any questions about your heart or circulatory health, please call the BHF Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Friday on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk.